Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. To thank our sponsors, today's program is sponsored by Phillips Lytle, the Randall J. Sweeney Education Fund at the Chautauqua Region Community Foundation, Chautauqua Abstract Company, the Robert H. Jackson Center Inns of Court, the Jamestown Bar Association, and the American Board of Trial Advocates. And we'd also like to thank the Chautauqua County Historical Society for the loan of some of the Albion Tourget documents that were outside our theater doors. So today, we are hosting you as part of our Constitution Day celebrations. Constitution Day itself is September 17th. On September 17th, 1787, 39 delegates to the Constitutional Convention met for the last time to sign their names to the Constitution. In the 50s, it started being celebrated as I Am an American Day, and then it was changed to Constitution Day, and in 2004, it became, well, I'll get to that in a little bit. Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution says that the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and other inferior courts as Congress deems necessary. And Article 3, Section 2 says the judicial power of the courts extends to all cases arising under this Constitution. And that's really part of how we get to here today. So as I was preparing for today's program, one of the things I learned was just how deep New York State's history is tied to the issue of slavery. As you came in this morning, you saw the panels from the Lemon Slave case, which came to the New York courts initially in 1852. Forty years later, we have the Supreme Court case that is the focus of today's program, Plessy v. Ferguson. One of Homer Plessy's attorneys was Albion Tourget, who lived in Mayville, New York, and is buried in Mayville, New York. And about 10 years after the Plessy v. Ferguson case, W.E.B. Du Bois called on a group of men to gather for two purposes. The first was for aggressive action on the part of men who believed in Negro freedom and growth. And the second was to oppose the present methods of strangling honest criticism, something that I think we're becoming more and more familiar with today as well. This group hoped to meet in Buffalo, New York, but no place there would accommodate them. So they moved across the river into Canada, and they adopted a constitution and bylaws, formed committees, and wrote a declaration of principles. And this is the start of the Niagara Movement, which was the forerunner of the NAACP, whose lawyers 
took a case to the Supreme Court in the early 1950s that overturned Plessy v. Ferguson. And this history is also very closely tied with Justice Robert H. Jackson's history. He was born four years after the Plessy decision, and one of his final cases on the court was the opinion that overturned the Plessy ruling, Brown v. Board of Education. Now, I shortened something in my introduction. So the full name of the day we are celebrating is Constitution and Citizenship Day. Jackson gave a speech a few months after he took his seat on the US Supreme Court entitled, Statecraft Under a Written Constitution. And let's break that down just very quickly. What is meant by statecraft? Statecraft is the ability to be an effective political leader, and it covers all actions that contribute to governing a state or a nation and conducting the work that is required. Jackson said, no citizenship in the world today imposes upon its members a burden of watchfulness and understanding greater than does the citizenship of the United States. Now, Justice Robert H. Jackson had a great amount of respect for the Constitution, and he considered it a living, breathing document. And he also believed that there was immense importance that the public have a deep understanding of how government operates. Because if future generations do not master that, they will make important decisions without a solid foundation. And so for you students, he had a wish for you. Statecraft is America's youth for the taking. There is no reason why they should delay a single day in contributing their part to public opinion. So I will say to the students in the crowd, when you see something you want to change, figure out how to change it. Talk to people. Do the research. Look at it. Challenge it. This is all part of what it is for you to do as well. So I am pleased to introduce our featured guests for today. Keith M. Plessy is a New Orleans native and is the great-grandson of Gustav Plessy, Homer Plessy's first cousin. Homer Plessy is the name petitioner in Plessy v. Ferguson. He is the co-founder and president of the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation. Phoebe Ferguson is also a native of New Orleans and the great-great-granddaughter of Judge John Howard Ferguson, the named respondent in the case. And in 2009, they co-founded the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation, where Ms. Ferguson serves as the foundation's executive director. Mr. Plessy attended an historic black elementary school in the Seventh Ward of New Orleans, and it was where he discovered his connection with Homer Plessy and his love of drawing. He went to high school, in, at John McDonough and New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, where he graduated in 1976. And in 1979, his alma mater requested that he return to his former elementary school to make, to make the hallways a daily reminder that education leads to great futures. And for that project, Mr. Plessy painted more than 100 images of famous Ameri African Americans, including many civil rights icons. That effort sparked a lifelong interest in civil rights history and the role of his ancestors' fight for equality. He takes great pride in sharing the remarkable history of Homer Plessy and the Citizens Committee and their efforts to end segregation laws in the South. He is also a great ambassador of New Orleans history and culture 
and has been a 40-plus year employee of the New Orleans Marriott Hotel. Prior to her nonprofit work, Ms. Ferguson's worked as a professional photographer in New York City for 18 years. In 2001, she went to NYU to study sociology and documentary film. And in 2003, she returned to New Orleans to make A Member of the Club, a feature documentary about New Orleans' oldest black debutante society and the rise of the black middle class from 1895 to 2005. Ms. Ferguson moved her business from New York to New Orleans in 2006, and now operating as Bayou and Me Media Productions, she produces videos on the history and culture of New Orleans and social justice areas. Her particular area of focus in both her media work and her work at the foundation is education equity. Ms. Ferguson, along with the other members of the foundation, have been actively involved in community and legislative efforts to stop the privatization of public education in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And in 2006, Ms. Ferguson began documenting the process of implementing the country's first all-charter school system from the perspective of the families, teachers, and students, which resulted in a perfect storm, the takeover of New Orleans public schools, which is an ongoing video series. And today's panel would be, will be moderated by Greg Peterson, one of the Jackson Center's co-founders and of counsel with the law firm of Phillips Light. Oh, we're going to have Greg and Keith and Phoebe start. How did this happen? How did we gather together today on Constitution Day with the descendants of one of the foremost Supreme Court cases in the history of the United States? Because if there was no Plessy versus Ferguson, there would be no Brown versus Board of Education. And how did this happen was I was reading the New York Times and it talked about the Louisiana legislature authorizing the governor of Louisiana to execute a posthumous pardon of Homer Plessy. In the law business, Plessy versus Ferguson is a known commodity. And there in the article was references to quotes from somebody named Keith Plessy and somebody named Phoebe Ferguson. I go, ah, I bet they might have a number. So the beauty of Google is all of a sudden, boom, Phoebe's number appears. She made the mistake of answering. And <laughs> many moon, here we are a few months later gathering together. So uh, what you were seeing behind us here was a, the actual ceremony in January 5th 2022 in Louisiana, whereby the governor was signing the pardon, the posthumous pardon of Homer Plessy's conviction, a conviction where he pled guilty to uh, violating the Separate Car Act. And this, in fact, was the pardoning of that aspect. And what you have here is the district attorney, I believe, uh, setting the scene uh, a very five-minute articulation of it all, which was a perfect setup. And what was fascinating to me was this ceremony brought to light not only Plessy versus Ferguson, but also Plessy and Ferguson. So just curious, Phoebe, you first, when, how did you even know that that was running its way through the legislature, that maybe something you guys, the two of you started in 2007, may find this kind of attention. 
You're talking about the um, the, the pardon. No, the pardon okay. yeah. Well, actually, um, we helped instigate it. Mm -hmm. We were approached by a uh, civil rights lawyer in New Orleans who was reading, again, this book that brought us together called We as Freemen, Plessy versus Ferguson. And that book was written by a local historian. And um, what was great, his name is Keith Weldon Medley, and he told the story from the New Orleans point of view. Anyway, she was reading that in 1897, after the decision, Homer Plessy, the, pros the prosecutors, wasn't enough that the decision was, you know, uh, that they lost in the Supreme Court, that they were going to go ahead and prosecute him. And that 1897, it was January 11th, 1897, so she realized that that was a, in January of 22, would be 125 years since he had pleaded guilty. And she wondered if we've celebrated every anniversary that's ever come up, if we'd actually celebrated that one. And um, I said, well, no. But she, 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 because she worked so closely in the civil rights community, she put together in her mind that this might be an opportunity for us to approach the DA's office because at this time, the gentleman speaking in the video, DA Jason Williams is a very progressive attorney, progressive DA attorney, and they initiated in the, um, when, when he became, when he got into office, he, he got the former executive director of the Innocence Project to head a civil rights division inside of the prosecutor's office with the mission of maybe not undoing past harms, but reducing past harms to the African-American community that they have experienced through these decades and decades and decades of um, discrimination laws. And so that was the setup, and we were totally on board with approaching them, and we did so, and then they were thrilled because this case would be the most symbolic case they could use to educate the public about, you know, redress, that, that, that there is no... There is no deadline. Uh, there, there, it, it's always time for justice. Like it, even though it was 125 years ago, this still needed to happen, and this would be a profound way of uh, reckoning with our past. Well, maybe that's a good segue. We are, this is Orleans District Attorney Jason Williams. Over a century ago, one of my Orleans District Attorney predecessors prosecuted Homer Plessy's brave defiance of the Louisiana Separate Car Act of 1890. Just one of many Jim Crow laws passed by the Louisiana legislature to codify white supremacy and racial segregation after the Civil War. Homer Plessy died convicted of this crime, but the legacy of Jim Crow laws lived on for generations. Lived on, that is, until a steady stream of civil disobedience by heroes standing on the shoulders of leaders like Homer Plessy risked their lives, causing so much good trouble that elected officials were forced to act. But the legacy of separate but equal still cast a shadow on all of our lives today. That shadow is clearly visible in the gross inequalities we see across this city, 
and across this state, and I say across this country. It was important that the office that prosecuted Homer Plessy be the office to ask for his name to be pardoned. Because we all know that while Homer Plessy's actions at that time made him guilty of a crime under the law, it was really the law that was the crime. My predecessor should not have prosecuted Homer Plessy. Just because a law can be enforced or a person can be prosecuted does not mean that they should be. Slavery was lawful for 250 years in this country. The late Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, true reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. It is a risky undertaking, but in the end it is worthwhile. Because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. And although our great country has slow walked its reckoning, the office of the DA will not. America has never had a process of truth and reconciliation, an honest confrontation with the reality of its oppressive past. And we see the direct consequences of this failure to have an honest conversation so boldly in the criminal legal system, most notably with the grossly disproportionate, disproportionate criminalization and incarceration of African-Americans. The Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office is now working openly and transparently towards confronting those dire consequences. But while we seek to correct the sins of the past, we must acknowledge my predecessor's roles in committing these sins if for no other reason than to build the public's trust in our legal system. We must reckon with our past. We must confront, we must acknowledge, and we must humbly ask for forgiveness for the role our legal institutions have played in the apartheid that the people of this country have endured. Let me be clear, Homer Plessy was no criminal. He was then and he is now a hero. And we will do our part to ensure that history reflects just that. Homer Plessy, Louis Martinet, Albion Touje, and the Citizens Committee belong to a long line of heroic civil disobedience that Dr. King traced all the way back to the early Christians defying unjust Roman laws. The state of Louisiana prosecuted Homer Plessy to make a point of upholding a racist law. And just as these trains are weighing in and hissing the same way they did when he boarded that train, today we make a very, very different point. We now ask our governor, Governor John Bell Edwards, to pardon Homer Plessy from the stain of immorality on our state's history. So let me Welcome our friend, friend of New Orleans, friend of justice, our governor, John Bell Edwards. With the stroke of his pen, Governor John Bell Edwards 
opens a new chapter in the legacy of Homer Adolph Plessy. This historic posthumous pardon is proof that 125 years after his conviction, the state of Louisiana recognizes and honors Plessy for his role in opening the gates of the civil rights movement of the 20th century. So quoted a guy named Keith Plessy. Keith, so, so you're listening to this and you're a Plessy. What's your reaction to all this? Well, on, on that particular day when uh, the DA spoke, I, I described to the audience that day that my feet felt like my feet were not touching the ground because I thought that my ancestors were actually there with me, carrying me that day. From all the research that we've done in our time and to have the dream that we've already dreamt a long time ago, to have everybody come on board with our thought of coming together as opposed to being Plessy versus Ferguson, we became Plessy and Ferguson. And we decided to be friends. You know, it sounds like, you know, people describe us as unlikely friends, but we are intentional friends. We intended to be friends from the very beginning when we shook hands, when we met at Keith Medley's book signing. You know, the, the tie-in with the DA's speech and what followed after with the DA's office was when we brought everything to the DA's office, they went to work right away to find ways to get home of Plessy's party. And in their research, they discovered the Avery Alexander Act, which was written in 2006. And this was written for civil rights uh, activists who were arrested in the 60s, in the 1960s. And uh, it was named after Avery Alexander. And to give you an example of who Avery Alexander was, he once sat in City Hall cafeteria in New Orleans to protest uh, blacks not being able to sit there and eat. And they were employees at City Hall. And he was dragged up the steps by the police department with his head hitting the steps as they dragged him up the steps by his feet. And he, he, he went through that and he survived that. And he sat in with many voter rights demonstrations, housing, and just generally civil rights in New Orleans. And to have his name on the act that actually gave Homer Plessy the pardon was an extreme honor to both of us. It's the Avery Alexander Pardon Act. And um, it was written for those who, in the 1960s, were in the sit-ins, the Freedom Rides, and we have several Freedom Rides and sit-in survivors in New Orleans that went through those 1960s. And he wrote, he wrote the, the Pardon Act so that they could get pardons, but they all refused. So from 2006 to 2022, <laughs> nobody uh, decided to sign up for that pardon. And it was just sitting on the books waiting for Homer Plessy, who 125 years ago committed his so-called crime of violating the separate car law. Wow. So he would be the first in Louisiana wow. to receive the pardon under the Avery Alexander Pardon Act. Another quote that day, we cannot undo the wrongs of the past, but when our government officials publicly acknowledge them and take steps to legally correct them, we give hope to this generation and the next who will continue to be on the front lines in the fight for justice and equity in America. 
so saith Phoebe Ferguson. What, what, what's, what's your sense of all of this? Do you have a part in your great, grand, great, 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 great grandfather was the judge who actually was in, involved in the case and the conviction, so you were part of that. And what, what is you as a descendant, how, how do you feel about this? I was thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> when you look at the trajectory of the case, so most people that know about the case, they know about the Supreme Court part of the case. They know, they know that it was a, a civil rights challenge to oppose the discriminatory law, which said that the Separate Car Act, which was written in 1890 by the Louisiana legislature, segregated blacks and whites in separate train cars traveling within the state of Louisiana. And these laws were, we weren't the first to, to pass these laws. They were happening all over the, the South. But when we passed, when the state passed this law, there was, in New Orleans, a very different culture and climate than, some, than many other Southern um, cities. And that was that we had this um, Creole uh, community of um, highly educated men that many were had been from French-speaking families and educated in Paris, and and but not all of them. And women. And and women. In this case, many of those or some of those men, eighteen men that ended up uh, comprising of the Citizens Committee. Um, had also been a part of writing the 1868 Constitution in Louisiana. You know that in 1868, all the, all the southern states that had seceded had to write a new constitution, which included um, the civil rights being granted to newly freed slaves. Uh, so, so they were a part of that. So then, you know, 30 years later, or 25 years later, and having gone through Reconstruction with integrated schools and um, basically all, you know, all granted all rights except, well, male suffrage came later, you know, in 1870. And then this period of time post-Reconstruction, which all of these civil rights were removed, they were outraged by this law. And they, they came together to, to organize and to fight this separate car law, and their mission was to get it to the Supreme Court but they had to start in New Orleans with the local district court. And Judge Ferguson was tapped to be in that court just a few months before this case happened. And um, so he was the first um, roadblock they had to get past. And so that story, we probably get into it a little bit more later. It's, um, you know, this is where when you dig a little deeper, you find out details that are quite surprising. Well, your great-great-grandfather was a, from Massachusetts. Yes. And a carpetbagger, similar yes. to a guy named Albion Tourget, who we'll also talk about a little bit later. And he uh, came down there uh, and um, stayed there and, 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 mm -hmm. be, and became a judge. And in uh, 1891, the uh, legislature passed a separate car law, and I think we'll just briefly talk about that, uh, which mandated, the law mandated, and this is not, this is sort of, sort of unique, mandated that equal but separate accommodations for the white and colored passenger 
trains in the state. So they mandated it, mm -hmm. which didn't make anybody really happy uh, with regard, certainly, the trains. Right. I mean, the people who actually ran the trains were mandated to have separate cars. So uh, this committee that you start, you talked about, headed by uh, Louis Martinet. Mm -hmm. And do you want to briefly talk about Louis Martinet? I don't know if either of you have a little bit of a quick bio on, on him, because uh, he clearly is a major player. Well, in terms of his relationship with Albion Toji yeah. and with Homer Plessy, personally, because I've talked to uh, some of Martinette's relatives ah. in California, and uh, they mentioned the fact that I'm, I'm pretty sure that Albion Toji had some, a lot of influence in, in the selecting Homer Plessy as the plaintiff, but also did uh, Louis Martinette, because from the family member I heard, that he was the one that talked Homer Plessy into volunteering mm -hmm. as a plaintiff for the case. So they both had uh, a serious influence on Homer Plessy volunteering as the plaintiff for the case. Well, since you're Keith Plessy, talk about Homer Plessy. Who was he? Uh, born in, and, and this is something that on a lot of uh, documentaries and so forth, and even the governor stated it wrong that day. He was born... March the 17th, 1863, I have his birth certificate. <laughs> so everybody says 1862. I don't even think it was a thought in his daddy's mind. Yeah. But anyway, they always say 1862, and it's on the tombstone. So it's, it's really wrong. You know. But 1863, according to his birth certificate. Uh, born in New Orleans, and uh, grew up in pretty much, I'd say, 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and he was born not too long after that. I think that was January of 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was announced, and he was born in March that year. Uh, his upbringing in New Orleans was pretty much uh, the Reconstruction era, and in its, in its full force when you had Union troops in New Orleans enforcing the law. So he was able to attend the same schools as white children, uh, he was able to marry a white woman if he chose. Uh, he was a free person of color uh, from his lineage and in his, I would say, his uh, DNA. In 1790, his great-grandfather, his maternal great-grandfather was white. He married a free woman of color. They had children. And uh, I would say in the, the 1860s, his maternal grandfather was fighting for civil rights. And in the 1870s, his stepfather, because his father died when he was very young, his stepfather was fighting for civil rights. So he was exposed to it in stages of his life growing up in New Orleans. So it was in his DNA to fight for his freedom when his rights were being taken away. So he was one of the, also he was with a, a group of activists who advocated for the public schools to stay open at the late stages of Reconstruction, where post-Reconstruction was about to happen, and rights were being taken away. He was part of the Justice, Educational, and Protective, Justice, Protective, and Educational Social Club, and that sounds like a, a little club that got together and had parties, but they fought to have public schools open for black children when they were closing them. And he was part of that group before he became part of the Citizens Committee wasn't a, a full force member, but he was selected, as I was saying earlier, by, uh, because of his activism in the community. 
he was selected as the plaintiff in the second case. Well, also, I think it's, uh, he was selected because of his look. Yes. He uh, was a... Well, they say seven-eighths uh, white, mm -hmm. one-eighth black. That was according to his great-grandmother, and it's a long story, so I'll just, I'll just state that she had her freedom granted to her by the governor of Louisiana in 1779. So that's how they became free people of color, from her purchasing her freedom under Spanish colonial rule in 1779. And the governor of the state of Louisiana, which was the Louisiana Territory, which stretched all the way up to Canada at the time. It wasn't part of the Union. But just recently, they've been included in the American Revolution, sons and daughters of the American Revolution, as they helped Washington win the war in the American Revolution. And Homer Plessy's great-grandmother and great-grandfather were part on his, on his uh, mother's side of his family. They were part of the American Revolution. Interestingly enough, and Stephen Luxemburg in his book did a little research yeah. and did the census. In 1880, Homer Plessy, under, in describing what he was at the time, they could put an M for mulatto. In eighteen nine or nineteen hundred, it was B, black. Nineteen ten, B, black. Nineteen twenty, he puts W, white, because he's an. I guess the term's an octoroon. Is there eight, one eighth black? And yet that becomes a pivotal part of the arguments that go into the Supreme Court is the definition of race, of which Louisiana did not have, though they were trying to enforce race. Well, I can tell you, in my family, there were several Plessys who changed their names because they appeared to be white, and they were able to vote because the voting rights were taken away. <laughs> that's how you were able to be on the census as a voter. Yeah. And that's why he and, you know, And it was strange in his case because he never changed the last name. And he was involved in the case. So it would seem as though he would be a target and he wouldn't be able to vote, but he was able to cross over. And I was talking to uh, uh, someone this morning and they said that Albion told you he was a member of the Scottish Rites Masons. So was Homer Plessy. <laughs> well, let me just tie this all together in a perfect world. <laughs> Uh, because this particular facility that we are in, the Robert H. Jackson Center, in its prior iteration, was owned by the Scottish Rite Consistory, which is part of the Masons. So the Masonic uh, Cele Celebration Center was right here, where Homer Plessy was a member and Robert Jackson was a member. It's a beautiful thing. Who knew? Maybe they're, they're all brothers. Do you, know, uh, do you all know what the Scottish Rites Masons... The Masan Masonic uh, Masons, um, by the way, there's, there's actually a, up top there, there is a symbol, which is a Masonic symbol for justice that's up there. I won't go into great detail about the Masons. You can look it up, but not now. Do not look it up now but on, on the Masons. But that's, that's an interesting... It's an interesting story. And I, Phoebe just mentioned the fact that probably in 1920, he changed, and legitimately so, his designation to white because of voting. Probably that, that was it. So we'll go back to the case. We have the Separate Car Act and doing a little research on Chautauqua County, Mayville, New York, has an attorney by the name of Albion Tourget. Briefly, he was a civil rights activist. He was a writer. He wrote various books of which got a lot of attention, including this one called Buttons In, right here. And as a result, uh, he was 
writing for the Chicago paper and wrote a letter to the Louis Martinet in 1891. Uh, it was a newspaper article against, writing specifically against the separate car law. He had he'd read it and wrote about it, which then got Martinet's attention at the committee, and then they contacted each other. And it was at that time where Albion Torger in Mayville, New York, right up the road, Chautauqua County, uh, was asked to participate in a potential legal case. And there's correspondence, which we will see later today, on that subject. And so he's brought in, they actually raise money for his legal fees. He turns it down. He takes no remuneration. He said he will take this case on for principle. So hence was the beginning of the introduction of Albion Torger, a white Republican carpetbagger who was in North Carolina for many years, was a judge in North Carolina, hence became Judge Albion Torger, and uh, is very sympathetic of the plight of the, of the colored at the time, was the term, in Louisiana. So do you want to kind of, do you, do you have a sense of what happens after that to the committee, you know, how, how they decide and to proceed? Uh, if you want to do that? Well. Or Keith, go ahead. What Keith's pointing out is that the other thing that's not as well known about the origin of the case in New Orleans was that, that the 18 members of the Citizens Committee, which um, Louis Martinet was one of the founders. There were two cases involved in this Plessy v. Ferguson finale. Plessy v. Ferguson being the last, but the first was Daniel Dedu was a, he was a musician, and he was a member of the Creole Onward Brass Band and the son of Rodolphe Dedu, one of the Citizens Committee's founders. His case was an interstate case, and what they were attempting to see if they could change this law in Louisiana, the separate car law, by trying a case on the interstate level, which it was thrown out. And they thought for a minute that when they would challenge the intrastate law, which was written in the state of Louisiana, separate car law, that they would have to select someone similar to Daniel Daydoom, who could appear to be white. And Homer Plessy was selected as a result, being that second case and you know, became uh, the plaintiff in Plessy versus Ferguson eventually. Yeah, and it just uh, add a little uh, flavor to that. Uh, the first case, uh, they bought a ticket to go to Alabama. Hence, it was an interstate travel, and there had been decisions that, in fact, the uh, applicability did not apply in this particular state law. So, in fact, they won. They, well, yeah, they won, was, but they didn't want to win. It was a federal. Exactly. It was a, fe cause it was it was a, a federal dis um, law which is that they couldn't, so they couldn't regulate it on, but, you know, uh, it on state's level. It didn't directly challenge. Yeah, correct. Right. right. So you win, but you lose, and so hence, it, hence. And as a matter of fact, that was overturned, actually, in Judge Ferguson's court. He, overturned, ah, he threw it out um, because simultaneously, you know, you know, they, 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 you know, the federal law was that you could travel, you couldn't regulate the interstate trains to say that they had to be separate. Um, so, yeah. so now they, they reach out to somebody else. Uh, this is your great, great uncle, or great, great uncle Homer Plessy, and uh, who looks the part. And they, it's now, it's a, literally a staged arrest. I mean, there's, it's, it's, everybody's on board. Well, in addition, the railroad company, East Louisiana Railroad, 
was totally against the segregation law. And just like you were saying earlier, that it was difficult for the conductors to determine who was white, who was black, how to see them in the, the separate cars and so forth. You had, a, you had a, a business monkey wrench in there somewhere where, you know, if somebody was going to a, a business appointment and somebody black showed up and there was not a separate car attached to the train, you had to wait until that train was attached <laughs> so that one man could sit in one car in the back while the other passengers waited and whatever appointments they had, they were late for. Oh, my God. And so, it cost them $1,500 to add one car, which was a lot of money. So, days. you know, being, being those elements involved, it was difficult for the railroad company to make money. So they were in the business of making money. And they wanted to sell all first-class tickets. They didn't want to sell a second-class ticket or a separate car. So they were in on the plan with the Citizens Committee, Albion Torje. And what I'm finding out more now is that Albion Torje was there from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking he, he came along later when he went to U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm learning more now today that, you know, I just found out last night doing a lot of reading that he was involved from the very beginning mm -hmm. and all the way through, all the way to U.S. Supreme Court. Well, they clearly won a test case, and then, in fact, the second one, uh, June 7th, 1892, so now we're on the 130th anniversary, sports fans, of that, if you want to be an anniversary person, uh, here we are. And um, what happens next? I mean, he, he, he literally sits down. Here's a seventh, eighth, seven eighth white person, sits in a white car, and he has to be identified as not being white. Well, the perfect thing that happened was that they had it orchestrated whereby he could be removed from that train without incident. Because in those days, right in 1891, as you mentioned earlier, when it started, there was 11 Italians that were hung in Congo Square and shot from the, hanging from the ropes. Uh, their case was a case that was involved with the chief of police being murdered, and there was a war in the docks between Italians and Irish. And... The Irishman was the, the, the police chief, and he was murdered by, I say a group of Irishmen, everybody knew that, but they charged the Italians with the murder. And when they were acquitted, coming out of the jail, the mayor of New Orleans incited a riot, and I won't call it a riot, it was a massacre. And they took these guys as they were being shipped from the court, being acquitted, kidnapped them from that area, brought them out to the Congo Square, hung them, and shot them from the ropes as they were hanging. Maybe one escaped out of the whole group. But uh, that's the climate that was in Homer Plessy in 1892, a year later, decides to get on this train with the help of the Citizens Committee. So they had to orchestrate that incident to where he would be protected. You know, the, the, the bail was set. They, they had people helping them. The arresting officer was working with the Citizens Committee. So when they took Homer Plessy from that train on that day when he purchased the ticket, they whisked him off to Central Lockup and put him in jail, but they quickly got him out the very next day and without incident. So it was, it was orchestrated from many players, you know, the, the railroad company, the citizens committee, the lawyers, everybody was involved and the plan worked. And the eventual thing they wanted to do was to go to the U.S. Supreme Court to try this because there were laws across the South, separate car laws that had been existing for 10 years before ours. 
in Louisiana. So we were like 10 years after Tennessee. So these laws, they wanted to wipe them all out across the nation. So they got their day in court, but like we were saying, it was a loss. And after he lost the case, he goes and signs his guilty and pays a fine in Louisiana in, in the very next year. But uh, I was thinking, he said something about football. You know, we were talking earlier about why would they not mention Plessy v. Ferguson in the obituary of Alvin Torji and Judge Ferguson's obituary? In many instances, there was opportunity to mention the case, but it was ignored. But I was thinking football, and I mean, this year you guys are going to the Super Bowl, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about those bills? But if you look back at their history, they went to the Super Bowl four years in a row, and nobody ever mentioned these guys for what they did. They lost four years in a row. But to get there four years in a row and not have that story told, it's almost like I feel about Homer Plessy's story. You know, I mean, it's a loss, but you look at the victory of them making it there four years in a row, and nobody ever talks about that. They always mention the winners. But back to history. Well, you know, I love Keith Plessy and Phoebe Ferguson because here they play to the crowd. So how they could tie in, and even I could not figure out how Homer, how Keith Plessy could tie in the Buffalo Bills and Homer Plessy and play to this crowd. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Good. Nicely yeah. done. Yeah. So uh, the case itself works its way now. Uh, he's, he's arrested. He's arrested. And then kind of take it from there, Phoebe, and your dad gets in, or your great-great-grandfather gets involved. Okay. So... It is interesting. Can I, uh, can I give a little? Sure. Um, so Judge Ferguson was from Martha's Vineyard, was where he grew up, right? And his family were whalers. And um, he decides he wants to get to be a lawyer, so he goes to Boston. And in those days, you could study under another lawyer in order to get to pass the bar. You didn't necessarily have to go to university. And so that's what he did. He studied under a lawyer named Hallett there who at times was an abolitionist and attorney general and anyway, he was born in 1838 and so was Albion Torje. Albion Torje was born in Ohio and as I understand it in kind of a anti-racist hotbed, um, his community and so that his beliefs in equal rights was embedded in him as a very small child. Judge Ferguson, on the other hand, not so much. He, in the late 1850s and early 1860s, he's studying law and practicing law in Boston. And Albion Torje, in the meantime, has joined the Union Army, gotten seriously wounded, went home, recovered, re-enlisted back in the Union Army, gets further injured, injured comes back, while he's recovering, he gets married. He finishes his studies because he left and re-enlists again. He just couldn't seem to. So, and he got even more seriously injured. Judge Ferguson doesn't join the Union Army at all. He, I don't know whether, he must have paid someone, huh, to take his place? Isn't, wasn't that yep, the that, deal? Yep, that's the deal. That's the deal. So um, now they both come down to the South in 1865. Abion Torje goes to North Carolina and, you know, becomes this incredible, you know, activist and then a judge, yes? And um, Judge Ferguson 
goes to New Orleans and basically hangs out his shield and becomes um, a lawyer. But yeah, so his thing was, we can't find anything that really talks about his views on race, but he was definitely a Puritan from Boston and he totally flipped out when he got to New Orleans and saw all this gambling and prostitution and he was just like, no, 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 we gotta clean this up. So that became kind of his mission and in so doing, he gets caught up with um, two politicians uh, Murphy Foster, who was then governor, and then Nichols, Nichols who, um, after he was governor, Murphy Foster puts him on the Louisiana as chief justice of the Louisiana Supreme Court. And these guys are, you know, white supremacists basically throughout their lives. You know, they want to get back to home rule. And so at the same time, they tap Judge Ferguson to fill a spot on the district court because the previous judge mysteriously disappeared shortly before that. And, um, and so these guys put Ferguson on the court and uh, most of his cases were, you know, just burglaries and murder, you know, whatever. And, and, but right away, you know, he's hit with the first test case of Daniel Dadoon and then Homer Plessy. This is where, I, the reason I brought up the parallels of the two is because, ironically, I think in some ways, even though we think about Judge Ferguson as being the villain or on the wrong side of history, when he, when his decision upheld the separate car law as being a st state's rights, the, the, the state had the right to regulate the railroads, and Homer Plessy violated their, their law saying that they need, needed to go into a separate car. Judge Ferguson, he, this is the moment, he actually knows Homer Plessy's local lawyer, who was James Walker and a former, a former Confederate soldier is defending Homer Plessy. The strategy that Tourget and the Citizens Committee put together um, was to argue the case based on the um, 13th and 14th Amendment. And so they asked the judge, they asked Judge Ferguson, you know, if they would, this is how they wanted to argue the case and so Judge Ferguson says, fine, you know, we'll reconvene in a couple of weeks. And um, so they made their case, and Judge Ferguson says, you know, you made a very good case, but Homer Plessy did violate the separate car law. And so therefore, I'm, he upheld that decision. Here's the key. So in the meantime, Albion Torje is this incredible hero, risking his life every day. The moment where Judge Ferguson says that Homer Plessy is guilty and decides not to set a trial date was his moment of heroism, mm -hmm. which isn't saying a lot. I mean, compared to you know, all these guys, Judge Ferguson was just not an activist in any way. And, uh, um, but he orchestrated with Judge, I mean, with uh, James Walker to postpone the case long enough for the Citizens Committee to appeal it to the state Supreme Court. And that was how the case began to move out of the district court and up towards the Supreme Court. And that apparently, according to uh, Mr. Luxembourg and every, everyone else, because of, they found it in Albion Torje's papers, that he went to the district attorney and on request of the Homer Plessy's lawyer to 
you know, act in a way that this case get moved up. And so he did that. Uh, yeah. You'll find that uh, interesting letter. I just found it on Thursday. It was, in fact, a letter uh, that James Walker had sent to Albion Torget based on Albion Torget's suggestion that the Attorney General talk to Judge Ferguson and how they were working that sort of procedural thing. And it did delay, which then, then created something called, and you can look it up, a writ of prohibition. And Judge Carter and or Judge Cass will explain that in detail, because uh, I can't, uh, but it's a writ of prohibition, which was the, the actual procedure that found its way to the Louisiana Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and they, in fact, then ruled in a way of which then opened the door. It's called then a writ of error. Writ of prohibition, writ of error, and that's the writ of error saying the Louisiana Supreme Court erred, and that was now appealed to the United States Supreme Court. So that essentially what happened, and you, you, I read also, and you'll see the letters, that it was well orchestrated, and Judge Ferguson, without changing the law, he just simply paused and, and just took a deep breath, and which permitted things to happen which opened the gates to work its way to the United States Supreme Court. So he's a, yes, in many ways, a hero. Well, a little hero. Age, um, small age. Yep. Small age. But anyways, it, uh, it, it, then, then Walker and Tourget spent four years, four years, mm -hmm. orchestrating briefs, petitions, how to set up an argument before the United States Supreme Court. And... We talk about race. We talk about race, and he used something really distinctive, race as property. Mm -hmm. That's a property you have. If you're a white person, it's a property value. And the black, it's a property value. And in this particular case, you know, 14th Amendment, you can't lose, you can't lose your rights to property without due process. 14th Amendment. So he came up with a sort of novel idea saying for Homer Plessy, one-eighth black, what is he? They've treated him in this law because of blacks and whites. If you're a black, your right becomes, your reputation gets skewed. It becomes less valuable. Mm -hmm. If you're a white, because you're in a white car, more valuable. Mm -hmm. So the value attached to race. And he actually had Walker spend a lot of time researching the Louisiana laws to see if there was a definition of race. Because how do you charge somebody? You, I mean, there's many lawyers here. And in the, in the wild world of criminal law, there has to be a definition. A definition of what you're charged. Charge, yeah. And then all the elements of the crime. Right. Well, all of a sudden, they found a great deal of research. Torget, Walker, there was no definition anywhere. Mm -hmm. Anywhere of race. So that became a pivotal part of the argument that worked its way up towards the Supreme Court. Well, and that happened too, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you know their original strategy was the 13th Amendment, which by putting black people in a, 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 another car, they became second-class citizens. Therefore, that was a badge of servitude. Therefore, that was the 13th Amendment stated that you could not be you know, that the uh, former enslaved were free people and therefore they couldn't be. And then on the 14th Amendment, you know, that they had the, um, they had full citizenship rights and therefore you shouldn't, you can't regulate them to another car. 
these arguments didn't work in Judge Ferguson's court. They didn't work in the Louisiana Supreme Court. They did use them in the Supreme Court, but again, the sitting justices found ways to, you know, as they are doing today, interpret the 14th Amendment narrowly enough to say that, that the state had the right to segregate the races and it did not, and it was constitutional, not unconstitutional. And so the question of race became so, so you know, a, a key point that they were trying to say, you are, what you're doing is asking this conductor to be, you know, a judge and jury of passengers, of citizens riding on a train. And who could do that? I mean, so when Homer Plessy got on the train, the story, which way do you tell it? That the conductor asked Homer Plessy if he was black or whether Plessy well, announced it? Well, according to the plan, the conductor approached him and he asked him, was he a colored man? And he replied, yes, I'm a colored man. I purchased my ticket and I'm going to Covington. And he said, well, you will have to move to the car of your race if you're a colored man. Now, automatically, you had, instead of somebody on another seat getting upset about it and getting into a fight with Homer Plessy, you had the arresting officer come in, C.C. Kane, who steps in and immediately grabs Homer Plessy and says, you've got to move. Mm -hmm. And he gets him out of the train before a commotion happens on the train because you had other passengers. Yeah. So that's how it was, it was orchestrated in a way where he wouldn't have any conflict with anybody. Mm -hmm. you know, and he, when, he worked, when he purchased the ticket office, when he went to the desk, purchased the ticket, they were waiting for him. They knew it was him when he got there. So they just sold him the ticket. No, no dispute. And you know, when it, when it came before Judge Ferguson, I remember he said that uh, nowhere in their argument did they say that the second class, the second car was unequal to the first class car. And therefore, he said that Homer Plessy was just doing as he pleased uh, when he violated it. Um, well, the law itself to say that uh, to promote the comfort of okay. passengers. Mm -hmm. Who, which passenger are you talking about? Then you're separated by white and black, but which passengers are having comfort and which ones are not? Right. But right. that was the law. That was, that's the way it was written. And what I was going to say before was that, um, so when Judge Ferguson agreed to the, you know, working with them to the, do the delay, he had to have realized that if they got past the state court, that they would actually challenge it on a writ of error to the Supreme Court, which would make him the, the defendant. And so therefore, he was putting himself, you know, the, the, play, the, the case would become Plessy versus Ferguson. So for someone who was a very, almost an introvert and stayed out of politics, race politics, uh, I think that was interesting that he had to, to think, I mean, I didn't think about this for a long time, but it finally occurs to me, wait a minute, he must have known this was going to happen and this was going to be a big case. Yeah, the case, the way it was styled, and I'm looking at Judge Carter over there, but it was styled so there was ex parte Homer Plessy. Mm -hmm. That's how it was before Judge Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And then it was ruling, and then enter the whole writ of prohibition process Louisiana Supreme Court, now it's a writ of error because it's directing Judge Ferguson not to proceed with the trial. Right. And so that's that aspect, hence Plessy versus Ferguson. So that's how it flipped. 
if you will. And you're right. That's kind of an interesting. I never thought about that, but that put him in uh, in the limelight. Right. And the question we get asked all the time is, how did it come to be called Plessy versus Ferguson? And so that's why you have to understand the progression of the case to understand that he suddenly becomes, instead of the judge, he becomes the defendant. So they argued essentially before the Supreme Court on two aspects. This is Constitution Day. The 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, and the 14th Amendment, which we'll get into some detail. The 13th Amendment aspect of it, the case, the way, again, back to the values, if, uh, if you're black, you, you, essentially they created a caste system, a caste system, blacks, whites, and that, in Torje's world and Walker's world, violated the 13th Amendment. And with regards to the 14th Amendment, the aspect of value, and there's several other details. It's a long 80-page brief, by the way. By the way, that brief is sitting in Westfield, New York. How many people from Chautauqua Lake School here? Anybody Chautauqua Lake School? A bunch of people? All right, right down the road, Westfield, are all of the papers of L.B. and Torger, including his brief that we're working off of right now. The actual yeah. document itself and the notes that he argued before the Supreme Court. But among the things he talked about, the 14th Amendment, which is the confiscation of property rights. Mm -hmm. My property right to the sustainability of, of, of life without due process, by being put into a black car, that value of race right. went down. And he wonderfully put in his brief, wonderfully put in his brief that Justice is pictured blind, and her daughter, the law, ought at least to be colorblind. The term colorblind, that will come up. Let me read that again. Justice is pictured blind, and her daughter, the law, ought at least to be colorblind. Critical piece of the puzzle. Now, for all of you who should, I'm going to side stop. Yeah. Please sign up your email, because in the packet, is a bunch of fascinating work done by Hurwitz and Fine, my, the Abota folks, talking about Plessy, and also by my firm talking about specifically the source of the term Constitution is colorblind. It goes back to 1870. I won't give you all the details because you have to read it, but it's, it's there in the brief uh, and in the files. We'll show that this afternoon. So that is an argument that is made by Elbian Tourget. And he went on to say something really profound and sort of right to the point. Now, the judges, you talked about the Supreme Court judges at the time were all pretty wealthy guys. They're all white. And he then says in his arguments, suppose a member of this court, he's looking at the court, eight, as it turned out, one guy recused himself. There was eight members. Suppose a member of this court Nay, suppose every member of it should wait tomorrow with black skin and curly hair, two obvious controlling indications of race, if so ordered by a conductor to change his seat. What humiliation, what race would then fill the judicial mind? She's so looking at him in the eyes and said, what happened if you woke up by the mere accident of birth and you, the conductor, the conductor, using his discretion, which he had complete discretion, and mandated you move. Would you think differently? 
Talk about difficult, you know, difficult argument, but he did it. He looked him right in the eyes and mm -hmm. said that. You know, that, that's where Albion Torge. And I'm sure they had nothing to say. Well, they, they said a lot in the, the opinion that it didn't affect them. Well, whatsoever. yes, right. As the case worked its way through, do you get a sense of back in New Orleans, there's the Citizens Committee. The game, it starts its way through the judicial process, and that's where it should be. That's where they wanted it to be, 1892. Many years pass, like four, mm -hmm. until it gets to the Supreme Court. Do you get a sense in New Orleans, was the Citizens Committee, Louis, Louis Martinet, that's what I say, what, what they were talking about, were they having a sense of optimism, pessimism? Well, the makeup of the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, was changing around that time, in the period of time that passed. So even the gentleman Nichols, who was mentioned by Phoebe as being an associate in Louisiana, was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court around that time. No, not it? Nichols, uh, Ed White. Edward Ed White. White. Ed White, Ed White. Yeah, Ed White. Ed White. Yeah. Yeah. But Nichols was the governor at that time. Mm -hmm. And all those things were changing. You know, you had massacres that happened like Colfax, Mechanics Institute massacres where, you know, hundreds of black people were murdered. And Nichols had a lot to do with it. Yeah, Murphy Foster. Murphy Foster as well. So these were associates of Judge Ferguson. So throughout that time, they were experiencing a lot of violence in New Orleans, leading up to the Pleasant Ferguson case in that four-year period. Well, and, and the country was... Be you know, in, in part, even though it hadn't been reached the Supreme Court, the segregation laws were increasing and the violence was increasing and they became, I know Louis Martinet became very disillusioned and concerned that they would not win the case. But, you know, they stayed with it and, and made, you know, made it to the Supreme Court in 1896. I mean, 1895 was... Something about 1895. Yeah, they set the case down for 18, 1895, and then I actually argued it in, in 1896. 1896, yeah. yeah. And so they literally, on uh, April 13th, 1896, before eight members, David Brewer was absent, uh, Torje argued, a guy named Phillips, who was the hired gun by the Citizens Committee from Washington, was there, and then also a hired gun on behalf of the Louisiana was, was there as well. I mean, Judge Ferguson had uh, this, the whole state, you know, of Louisiana, of course, they had to protect the law. It was the law mm -hmm. that, that was at, at issue here. And I, I just probably for the sake of, of timing, the decision came down. It was seven to one in favor of Judge Ferguson and Homo Plessy lost. Homo Plessy lost. The sole dissenter was John Marshall Harlan. What was the opinion, briefly, uh, was given by a guy named Justice Henry Billings Brown that dealing with the 13th Amendment, separate cars had nothing to do with servitude. It just He just washed it away. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with it, guys. And he went on to say, uh, a statute which implies legal distinction between white and colored has no tendency to destroy legal equality of the two races or reestablish servitude. And he basically said, Louisiana had the police power of convenience mm -hmm. and kind of used some very ambiguous terms that they had the power to do what they did when they passed the legislation and, and, and endorsed that particular custom. John Marshall Harlan was the center. One guy. One guy dissented. And he went on to say a couple of things of note. 
many things of note. It's worth reading the dissent. In my opinion, the judgment will, in time, to will prove to be as pernicious as the Dred Scott case of 1857. That's when it was decided that a black, by definition, was not a citizen. Right. Are you all familiar with the Dred Scott case? Go ahead, wait, uh, give it a little background. Well, well the, that was the case where it was, it, was decide, it was decided by the Supreme Court of the United States that a black man was considered to be three-fifths of a human being, and this was law. How um, would you like to be considered three-fifths of a human being? Does that seem something you can relate to? Okay. So they didn't either. <laughs> Go ahead. No, but uh, just on a note of victory, because we're talking about losses in the U.S. Supreme Court, Dred Scott, Plessy v. Ferguson. In 1852, the state of Missouri betrayed Dred Scott and his family because there was a once free, always free law. And when Dred Scott went to another state in 1852, which started this whole process with him in the 1857 case. Dred Scott was a slave. And he was, he was trying to get his freedom. He went to a state with a man who owned him previously, and he was considered free when he went to the state where it was a free state and not a slave state. Well. That freedom was short-lived. And in 1852, Missouri, the state of Missouri, turned its back on Dred Scott and his wife and sent them back to slavery. Now, I was a witness on March 26th this year. Went to St. Louis, Missouri to witness Dred Scott's charges in Missouri State Supreme Court, renounced hmm. by the legislature, hmm. by the Senate, and the House unanimously, Republican, Democrat, you name it, everybody unanimously approved of his charges being removed. And just like you saw the DA announcing Homer Plessy's charges being removed and him receiving a pardon, same thing happened for Dred Scott on the state level. Now the 13th, 14th Amendment and 15th Amendment were supposed to have changed the ruling in the, 19, in the 1857 case where he was considered three-fifths of a human. And they considered that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments had removed that, in a sense. But they still have to have, and I think we still have to have, a, a day in U.S. Supreme Court where that's considered null and void. In fact, that's a good segue to the continuation of the dissent of John Marshall Harlan, who famously said that in the view of the Constitution, he was mad, he was really mad. In the view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Let me repeat that. In the eye of the law, there is in the in the, this country, no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. The term colorblind, interestingly enough, was argued by Albion Tourget mm -hmm. in his brief. Is there a connection? Oh, yes. Is there a connection? Yes. A guy from Mayville, New York, right up the road, wrote that in Mayville, wrote those words in Mayville. And it's now become iconic 
in constitutional law, and Justice Marshall Harlan has subsequently uh, been revered as, as a great dissenter. Uh, I'll digress for just a second, because um, we know the end game here is in 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, which ruled that Plessy versus Ferguson is no longer the law. No longer the mm -hmm. law. It and overruled it. It overruled it. And Robert Jackson, our guy, uh, was part of that court. And I will go into maybe some detail later if time permits. But what was interesting, and I didn't know this, the New York Times. The New York Times, in blazing headlines in a big editorial, said, Justice Harlan concurs. Justice Harlan concurs on Brown versus Board because of what he said many years earlier in Plessy versus Ferguson, which is just a, just a fascinating how time gives the benefit of a dissenter's view, and it goes towards exactly what our earlier district attorney, Jason Williams, talked about. You know, if you have a feeling, feel it. Kristen McMahon talked about that earlier today for students, and that's a really credible object lesson. So Homer Plessy, unfortunately, loses in 1896. Do you have any sense at all what his reaction might have been? Do you have any history that, you know, I realize that's not what you wanted to have happen, but nevertheless, within the family, has anybody ever got a sense? Was he a, did it bother him? I mean, you know, what was the reaction? Well, it's kind of tough to, because our history is not accounted for as much as, you know, the history of those folks that won the case in that time. And maybe even Judge Ferguson on his obituary, you know, you had a little bit of attention there. But when Homer Plessy died, it was like uh, just a blank thing almost in the paper. Actually, it wasn't you know? mentioned in Ferguson's obit. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. But uh, it, back to the family, I, we never discussed it at the kitchen table when I was growing up. We never discussed the case. Um, I have a biology professor at University of Virginia who probably could have been the voice of our history, but he never pursued it. And here I come along many years after he passed through the colleges and so forth. I'm a bellman at the Marriott for some 40-some years. And in 1996, when I think your author, um, Elliot? Yep, Mark Elliot. Mark Elliot. Um, in 1996, I get introduced to the case by Mr. Medley. And uh, from there, I'm, I'm totally interested in finding out about my ancestor. And eventually, we meet through his book. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm chosen as the one to tell the story. So it's, it's kind of humbling. It's humbling because I get some calls from some of my family members at times, those that kept telling me in the beginning, what are you doing, man? That's just history, you know. <laughs> Uh, you keep talking about that same thing, you know. Even my daughters kind of doubted, you know, when we started talking about the case and trying to get the recognition for the Citizens Committee that they deserved. Um, you know, my family didn't go along with it too much. But uh, now I think they, when the governor signed that pardon, I think it got their attention. Now, but along the way, you, you did meet some civil rights activists, didn't you? Oh, wow. Uh, and the, the, I can attest to the Marriott being the place where I met him. Muhammad Ali for the second time I met in the Marriott. And the, the biggest 
person I could say that I ever met who actually gave me my, she put a, probably put a sword on my shoulder and sent me on my way to, to do the work. Give you marching orders. Rosa Parks. <laughs> and, not, every, uh, not everybody meets Rosa Parks, so talk about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, well, well, I'm at work in 1996, and 1997 rolls around, and they had the case, they had a big gathering in New Orleans with all the people from around the United States recognizing the case in 1996. Because it was the... It was the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the case. And uh, they did a mock trial for the U.S. Supreme Court case. Um, you had all the people there, uh, John Hope Franklin, Constance Baker Motley, uh, all the people with the NAACP were there. And I, I made some of the events, but that very next year, I'm working and all my coworkers were referring to me as Plessy versus Ferguson. I wasn't Keith anymore. So um, one of the guys says, hey, man, you know, Rosa Parks wants to meet you. And I said, come on, man. Why are, you, why are you doing this? You know, I mean, every day I'm here in Plessy versus Ferguson. Can I just be Keith? So he said, no, no, no. Uh, Rosa Parks is in the GM suite. And I told her your name. And she wants to meet you. So I said, well, okay. So I run to the GM suite tap on the door, and she happens to be traveling with Cicely Tyson. So that's who opens the door. I said, well, hi, Ms. Tyson. She said, oh, you must be that plastic boy. <laughs> so I said, well, yeah. So I walk to the back of the room, and Rosa Parks is sitting in this big chair. And I automatically, because that's that my idol. You know, she did what my ancestor did a long time ago, and I idolized the woman. She was considered the mother of the civil rights movement, the modern civil rights movement. So when I kneeled on one knee and said, thank you, my queen, for all your hard work, she said, get up, boy. Your name is Plessy. You got work to do. <laughs> I can tell you, I didn't, I didn't get it then. I really didn't get it then. I was too shocked. I didn't ask for an autograph. I didn't say, can we take a picture? Nothing. I was, in, I was blank. So, you know, she gave me a rose, and I tried to preserve the rose for like two years. It crumbled, and I have it in the paper, and it just went away. But she died during Hurricane Katrina when we were displaced. Uh, and I was in Memphis at the time. I was working at the Marriott there. So uh, there was a guy that came by, and he had the obituary, the original. And I said, man, could you make me a copy of that? So... He makes the copy, I get the copy, and I'm back, eventually back 2006, that happened in 2005, 2006, I'm back in New Orleans, and I'm in the lobby, and this lady comes in, and I ask her, well, where are you from? She said, well, I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. So her name was Miss English, she was like, working in the church at the time in, in, in Montgomery, and I said, well, I have a photocopy of Rosa Parks' obituary, and she said, really? I said, yeah, yes, ma'am, I'll make a copy for you. She said, son, Rosa Parks is my best friend. I have an original for you. So I have the original of her obituary. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's a good thing you showed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just went back to work normal. <laughs> there you go. That's got to go back in the archives, America. I think, doesn't it? Well, there's a perfect way to kind of get our way towards whining and get these guys back to class. But... Uh, Rosa Parks gives you, exhorts you, get on with the business. What is the business now of Plessy and Ferguson? We know you met through uh, uh, autograph signing 
book session with Keith Medley. And next thing you know, and so what's the mission here? Give us, give us, a, give us a charge. Well, our mission is, you know, on the one hand is to honor the work of the Citizens Committee and their courage and fortitude to take this case to the Supreme Court. And we do that by teaching the history of the case and why it's still important today. And you can, if you're following the news, you can understand with the attempt at um, reinstituting voter suppression laws and over-incarceration and, you know, even using overturning Roe, using Plessy to overturn Roe brings us into the case stays in the um, contemporary discussion about equality. So we do this in a few ways. We, we, we do what we're doing right now, talking to students all around the country, and we put up historic markers. One of the first things that we did, we, between the time we met and the time we founded the foundation, it was about five years, and um, the we, we wanted to put, we wanted to um, create in New Orleans a trail, mo a trail of, mo of monuments and honoring the work of African Americans in the city, the achievement and the resistance, and so that it would be a visible um, understanding of their of the existence and the you know who who really created New Orleans to be what it is, and who obviously the economy was based on slave labor. But there were no, nothing to, for people coming to the city, how would they know? So we put up historic markers, and the first one was um, the Plessy v. Ferguson case, and that was unveiled on the day that we announced that we would become a foundation. And um, since then, we've put up another four markers that honor well, I'll take it from there. Elementary school. Um, I would oh. say one of the most successful markers that we put up is evidence in a school building called now the TEP Center, representative of Tate, Etienne, and Prevost. Now, everybody knows the Rosa Parks. I'm not Rosa Parks, I'm sorry. It's, um, Ruby Bridges' story. Everybody knows about Ruby Bridges? What, what, what do you know about Ruby Bridges? But desegregation of public schools in the South and a six-year-old girl going into a William France elementary school for the first time in 1960. Uh, well, her story is a Disney movie. There's a book. But there were four girls who was involved in that case. It's called Earl Benjamin Bush versus Orleans Parish School Board. And to show you how stubborn the uh, Louisiana legislature was, that case was filed before Brown in 1952. And Earl Benjamin Bush was too old to go to elementary school by the time the case was recognized. Brown was decided in 1954. In 1960, six years had gone by in Earl Benjamin Bush's life, so he wasn't an elementary school student anymore. And they had to select four girls to integrate the public schools at the time. And, and just to show you how rough it was there, it would be more safe for them to select four girls than for boys, because there was this myth that the boys would attack your white daughters and you would have a problem. So they had four little girls to integrate the public schools. Two schools, William France, Ruby Bridges by herself, and three girls, Leona Tate, Gail Etienne, and Tessie Prevost, 
integrated McDonough 19. Now, by that one story coming out about Ruby Bridges, you would think that that was the only person, the only girl that integrated the public schools. But neglecting those other three girls, it kind of nullifies the case itself. And what we wanted to do when we came out of the gate, Keith Medley was a big influence on this, an author of the book, Weas Freeman. We wanted to recognize those three girls in the school they went to. So by the time we, in 2010, found the school almost ready to be hit by a wrecking ball, we had to go and put that marker up before the school board tore the school down. And we advocated, we got everything going, we worked with the Leona Tate Foundation for Change, which is one of the girls who now runs the TEP Center. But in 2010, we stopped them from tearing the school down, and over the period that went by, over about 11 years, 10 years or so, Leona Tate never gave up the fight. And her foundation, Leona Tate Foundation for Change, now houses the school that's been renovated with over 16 million to maybe $20 million to get the school refurbished. And they've taken the first floor of the school and turned it into an interpretive center. And they'll deal with anti-racism. They have a group called the People's Institute. People's Institute for Survival and Beyond who'll be housed in that area on the first floor. And on the top two floors of that school building is 25 elderly affordable living spaces. So you're taking care of the elderly, you're taking care of the young, out of a center where racism refused them to be students is now a shrine to peace. So He's just saying that, you know, and now the, the marker, the marker started that process. Right, exactly. Talking about marker, I am looking at and Plessy and Ferguson Foundation together. The importance of acknowledging the complicated past when building a stronger future. An inspiring response to the separate but equal Supreme Court decision of Plessy versus Ferguson. We have been blessed today, ladies and gentlemen, to have in our presence Plessy and Ferguson. So to Keith Plessy and to Phoebe Ferguson, many thanks. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from the Constitution Day program hosted by the Jackson Center in September 2022, featuring Phoebe Ferguson and Keith Plessy, descendants of the named parties in the landmark 1892 United States Supreme Court case Plessy v. Ferguson, which upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation in the United States under the separate but equal doctrine. This doctrine was finally overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Brown v. Board of Education decision in May 1954. This opinion was released in Justice Jackson's final term on the court. He passed away a few months later in October 1954. If you would like to learn more about the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation and the work Keith and Phoebe are doing, please visit their website, www.plessyandferguson.org. The history of the Plessy versus Ferguson case 
race relations, and the civil rights movement in New Orleans are intertwined with the personal stories of Keith Plessy and Phoebe Ferguson in Amy Nathan's recent book entitled Together, published by Paul Dry Books. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our websites and any of our social media. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, remember to subscribe and share with your friends. Thank you.